What's wrong with immigration control? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Chandran Kukathas. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Chandran Kukathas. Chandran is the Dean and Lee Kong Chan Chair Professor of Political Science at the School of Social Sciences at Singapore Management University. He was also the head of the Department of Government at the London School of Economics and Political Science from 2015 to 2019. And he had previously served as the Chair of Political Theory in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Chandran is a noted author on liberalism, multiculturalism, and diversity. And one of his books, just published last year, is called Immigration and Freedom. That will form the basis of our conversation today. Chandran, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. So, Chandran, we base each episode on a question and go where the answers in conversation takes us. Our, our question today is, what's wrong with immigration control? And I'd like to start first by setting up how you approach the issue overall, because you point out at the beginning of your book, actually, that there are some differences between the way you do it and the way others do. So I'll start by asking a question about the preface, actually. You, you say there are two origins to the roots of your book and your thoughts on the issue. There's political and social. Political, because you're troubled by the claims of state control. And I think a lot of our listeners will, will sort of understand that. We'll get into that a little more in a little while, but I, I think they understand that. But the philosophical part is what I want to stop on just for a second. Because you say you're unsatisfied by the contributions of philosophers writing about immigration, given their preoccupation with the question of whether states have the right to exclude or whether people have the right to move, and so on and so forth, and, and you go on. C- can you explain first, before we get into all the great stuff today, why you have this philosophical dissatisfaction with the focus of many of the conversations around this topic? Yes, it's not because I disparage the contributions of those philosophers, and I think that there are questions to be asked about the obligations and rights of states and governments Uh, just as there are questions to be asked about the extent to which people have rights to move. But I think disproportionate amounts of time have been spent on on these questions without really, I think, devoting sufficient attention, philosophically speaking, to some other issues that I address in my book. One of these, for example, is simply the question of what exactly is an immigrant? I think the philosophical discussions have taken that question very much for granted, or the answer to that question for granted, just as that literature has taken for granted the very question of what is a native and what is the claim of those who um, are generally regarded as the, the host population to see themselves in a particular way. I think those questions are no less a part of the the philosophical subject when we come to immigration than the questions of who has the right to move, what kind of right to move you have, what kind of right do people have to to exclude. Indeed, I think one can't really address this uh, other set of questions without engaging the prior question of what is uh, the nation, what is the state, what is... Uh, what is a native? 
Indeed, and 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 I will drill a little bit into that a little further in a second. And I just want to get one more point in about the framing of the issue, just to add to what you're saying as well. There. So another thing you mentioned about the framing of the immigration issue as well is that you say, and, and this goes with with how we define things, but. You, you talk about that the, it's often presented as the idea of insiders versus outsiders, but you, you you make a point as well to say that we must remember that political outcomes on the issue of immigration in a country is ultimately driven by the interests, by competing interests, I should say, of, of insiders. So can you elaborate on that a little more and connect that with, with your other thought? Well, one of the things I want to address is the is the very question of what is an insider um, you're quite right that the way the debate is usually framed is in the following terms. We, the insiders, have interests that should take priority over those of the outsiders. That is to say, whether it's citizens or nationals on the one hand and foreigners or would-be immigrants on the other. Now, this is fine if it's pretty clear what exactly is an insider or what is a, a national But I want to say that this is actually not so clear. In part, it's not clear because the definition or construction of the insider or the national is in part dependent upon immigration rules or immigration regulations. It's not that it's obvious who should count as an insider. To give you a simple example, in the United States, if you're born in the country, you are automatically a citizen or eligible for citizenship. Now, this was not always the case. There are now people who think that it should no longer be the case, that simply being born in a country is not sufficient for eligibility for membership. This is the principle of use solely, as it's put in Latin. The alternative principle or complementary principle of use sanguinis um, suggests that if you're born to someone who's a native or a national, then you should be eligible for citizenship. But again, it, that depends on what's to count as a native or a national. Does that mean you've got to be a full citizen? Does that mean you've got to be yourself someone who was born in the country? And one of the things I'd like to point out in the book is that all of these things um, are historical um, oddities. They've varied across time. For a long time in the United States, for example, if you're someone of color, you're simply never eligible for for citizenship. You could never be a a native or a national. Moreover, if a woman married a foreigner, she lost her American nationality, though a, a man would not. Later on in the early 20th century, the laws were changed so that if a woman married an outsider, um, she wouldn't lose her American nationality, provided that outsider was someone who was eligible for American nationality. That meant that that person could not be someone of color. Uh, So all of these things have changed radically over the years. It's not until 1983 that a British woman could pass on her uh, nationality to her children if she married a foreigner. That's pretty recent. Um, So all of these things make it important that we get a little bit clearer on what exactly it is to be a native or a national as against a would-be immigrant or a foreigner. And one of the things I want to say is that the first step in immigration control actually is 
classification. Mm. What we do through immigration control is not a simple matter of saying, okay, what do we do to protect the interests of the native population? What we do with immigration control at the outset is decide who counts as the native population. Well, if that's the case, uh, the whole debate on immigration, to some extent at least, begs the question because it presumes what is at issue. It presumes that we already know who the natives are. And I want to say, well, actually, this is what we're debating. So if we're debating who is a native, we can't say the purpose of deciding who is a native is to protect the interests of natives. And I think that's a philosophical question that needs to be addressed. And I think it's got to be addressed before you start asking questions like, what are the rights of natives? Uh, what are the rights of outsiders? Right. Because in this sense, as you were saying, uh, in, in a way, if, if we're not jumping right to just presuming who the insiders and the outsiders are, the conversation just naturally starts by affecting everyone that could be an insider to begin with, especially if we're talking classification, correct? Exactly, exactly. I mean, if uh, a native is someone who could become a native after immigrating, then the divide between the immigrant and the native or the national and the foreigner becomes much more blurry. Um, and so these things have to, be, have to be settled, but we can't settle them by assuming what is in fact at issue. And that's one of the things I try to spend a lot of time in my book talking about. Right. And I actually want to bring another point in here on, on this exact note, because um, you, you do talk about towards the beginning of your book and say that at the end of the day, of course, all this is important. But one of the underlying problems with a lot of the discussion and, and framing is the idea that people are encouraged to look at each other as sort of like members of a country and and that this is ultimately a, you don't say it in exactly this way, but this is the sentiment you say this is an ultimately an overrated and dangerous perspective, especially if we're going to start talking about freedom and what it means and how it affects uh, th- those kind of principles and values. So um, can you sort of get into that as well, too, like why it troubles you that people start thinking of this process of class? classification than members of a certain thing uh, and, and continue from there. Yeah. Well, I think the idea of seeing ourselves first and foremost as members of, uh, of a group of, of any sort has its, has its downside because um, on the one hand, uh, you can see the, you know, the virtue and the, the lure of being a part of a group. Um, it gives you a certain kind of solidarity. It gives you a certain kind of uh, assurance, but it also immediately puts you in in conflict with uh, with others, and it puts aside the the very obvious fact that we are all, to some degree, members of multiple groups, organizations. We have different loyalties, and so on. Um, Emphasizing the importance of one particular kind of uh, loyalty threatens to put us at odds with people uh, to the extent that they have overlapping memberships with different sorts of entities. So this is just very broadly speaking, when we are encouraged to see ourselves first and foremost as members of uh, of particular groups. I think this is you know, a, a very important source of conflict um, among human beings. But if we take the 
issue of membership of the the organization in question here, which is the the membership of states, I think this creates all sorts of other incentives which we should be very, very wary of. Firstly, um, once membership becomes something important, what you need to do is to actually define the content of that membership. Now, that may not be so much of a problem if you've got a small group like a, you know, a club of some kind. Um, and if your identity is invested in this in some way, it's not going to be that much of a problem because the numbers are small and probably the focus will be narrow. But if you've got something as um, large or substantial as a state and you're trying to say that, well, membership of this is something that is of overarching importance, the first thing you want to do is establish what it is to be a member of that state. Because as I indicated before, it's not simply a matter of being able to claim that you're a citizen or you're a national, because the, the rules with respect to this change, but also there will be questions about what it is to, you know, to have that particular identity. And the larger the entity in question, the more complicated it's going to be because we're all, of course, um, people who come to um, our societies or you know, grow up in our societies with multiple identities, religious identities, most obviously, if you want to take the United States and its history, that's been long uh, an important concern. And, you know, the whole structure of the Constitution is set in order to try to address this particular problem. The last thing you really want is to have a debate about what is the uh, the central element of, of this identity. But once you make membership really important, this is inevitably going to be a part of that of that question. Now, you could, of course, say, well, you know, we have a very capacious identity, in which case lots of things could be included. Well, if that's the case, then there's, there's actually not much reason to try to exclude people from joining this particular uh, organization, becoming a part of this entity. But those who want to exclude will naturally be drawn down the path of saying, well, we want to exclude all these people and we need criteria, in which case we're going to start saying things about what it is to be an Australian or an American or a Malaysian and so on. Now, once you do that, what you've got is actually an internal conflict. Mm. Um, the, the focus on membership, I think, is not just um, troubling from the point of view of our relationships with people outside the, the so-called membership, but it actually is threatening and destabilizing of the, the entity itself because it puts this at the, uh, at the center. And this conflict is ultimately not resolvable. It will be engaged you know, either um, in, a, in a more gentle way or it could erupt in something you know, much harsher. And I think that's, that's the worry in my, in my thinking. And as you said, practically speaking, it doesn't end up being every Canadian or every American or or every English person getting together to have this discussion. You ultimately end up with pockets of particular interest trying to define and create the criteria. Precisely. What what you end up really is is a contestation of uh, interests and ideologies uh, for the for the soul of the of the membership. 
Mm-hmm. And it, I suppose it, it also shouldn't go without saying that ultimately the end result of all this too is is not simply of course uh members and non-members there's often different levels of members people that are halfway a quarter way you know to two, two-thirds of the way almost all the way to becoming a full member you can it, it divides and conquers on many different steps as you get into this member versus non-member citizen versus citizen non-citizen distinction i think that's a very important point uh one thing that people you know, often say, for example, with respect to to uh, illegal immigration or illegal immigrants, uh, is uh, something like, "Well, what part of illegal don't you understand?" Well, the correct answer to this is a lot, because legality is itself uh, something that is highly ambiguous. For example, in uh, in American immigration law, you could, in fact, be simultaneously legal and illegal because the the process of transition from one status to another can be quite complicated. You could have the right to remain in the United States, um, but also be technically an illegal immigrant. Uh, And that's because of a number of reasons. It could be that you've overstayed your visa, but you may have overstayed for legitimate reasons, such as you've fallen ill and you've appealed to have your case considered. Well, you're allowed to stay, so you're legal, but you've overstayed, so you're illegal. And uh, immigration scholars simply point out that, you know, as lawyers, um, this status is unclear by design. It's not an accident. It's not something that um, legal authorities have failed to clarify. They need this ambiguity in order to address the complexity of people's identities, complexity of people's legal standing. It's, uh, and, you know, this is something that you probably find replicated across other dimensions of, uh, of law status. Um, it's never something that's, you know, simple and given. It's perpetually changing, being adjusted by laws responding to historical circumstances and so on. So I, I think the, the, the complexity of the case is something that's uh, often overlooked by those with, uh, you know, a strong position to defend. Mm. And and on your point about the fact that ultimately this this necessarily becomes a debate or discussion, not about insiders just affecting outsiders, if you will, but also about insiders affecting each other. I'd like to move us on to some some of the costs to certain freedoms, especially internally in a country when, when these sort of debates uh, continue, because you dedicate a good chunk of the book as well to to controls. And one thing I really like about that discussion is that, again, you don't just focus on, for example, uh, a border control or controlling the outsiders coming inside you focus on just the idea of control in general so so i'd like to trace a few of those pillars here uh because i think it's very important for for our listeners sort of see the angle that you approach this at um one of the sections in this area of the book you you basically title and and then explore immigration law and, and social controls and i would like you just to explore for a couple minutes here um, how you see immigration law and immigration controls and the overall discussion of immigration actually parlaying itself into the overall idea of social control in a country, for example. Sure. Um, so to start with a very simple observation, immigration control is not primarily about preventing people from entering or determining who may enter because societies generally want people to to come into the country, particularly if they're coming in as tourists who are going to spend money, but also they're coming in for a variety of other reasons, whether it's uh, 
you know, sports people or performers or business people and so on. So immigration control is very much about controlling what those people who are entering a country or in the country but not uh, classified as, as nationals, what, what they do. Um, but in order to control them, what's necessary equally then is to control your own citizens because they're the ones who are most likely uh, or all too likely to trade with them, to recruit them, to hire, to um, teach them, to do business with them, or to have more um, you know, subtle relationships with them of you know, friendship or, or even love. So you need to control that part of your population that's going to rent their properties to these people or going to sell um, to them and so on. So inevitably, what immigration control means is that you're going to have to have controls on uh, on your own citizens. Most obviously, there will be controls on your employers, slightly less obviously, but I think <clears throat> not difficult to understand. There will be control on institutions like uh, schools and universities. There will be controls on banks. There will be controls on landlords who will have to check the immigration status of the people that they're um, uh, um, letting their properties to and, and so on. But I think there are also even more subtle um, implications for the relationships that have to be controlled. Because, again, to take a, a real-world example, supposing you have a, a law that says you can't work in the United States or the United Kingdom without a valid uh, um, visa and a work permit and so on. But now, you know, um, you're an American citizen. You've uh, asked your mother-in-law, who's uh, Australian, to come and stay. Um, she's going to you know, help you taking care of the kids. She could get deported because that's illegal. It's not permitted. Uh, and you know, there are numerous cases of this, and I cite a few of them in, in the book, um, because these relationships um, aren't always simply straightforwardly transactional. The daughter-in-law hasn't invited her mother-in-law to come because she needs cheap babysitting. She's invited her mother-in-law to come to see her kids. Um, let me give you a slightly uh, different example. Um, every year in the United Kingdom, about 20,000 um, people British citizens are unable to reunite with their partners because they're not wealthy enough to sponsor their foreign-born uh, or foreign national partners to come into the country. There is a threshold of about £20,000. Um, you need to have that income in order to sponsor your partner. So if you go overseas, you meet someone, you fall in love, you get married, you want to bring your partner in, um, you can apply to do this, but you can't do it unless you meet a certain threshold. Now, I think the U.S. is less um, harsh on this because U.S. citizens have slightly stronger protections in this regard than British citizens. But these are all personal um, relationships that are affected by the fact that immigration control is, is in place. And it's there you know, to address certain sorts of concerns, but there is, there is a kind of fallout with respect to to other things. And I think there are also further ways still that um, governments' attempts to control immigration rebound onto the, uh, the population of uh, the countries in question. Um, you know, 
one um, thing I point out in uh, in the book is that between about 1930 and 2000, the United States deported about one million of its own citizens in not foreign-born people. It it deported about two million people over that time, but one million of those were American citizens. Now they obviously deported them by mistake, but the reason they did this was that they were pursuing other goals with respect to immigration. Now, um, one of the things that makes it complicated is that it's not easy to identify someone as an immigrant. The more seriously you try to deport people, the more likely it is that you will make mistakes. Well, a million mistakes is a lot of mistakes, but you've also got to think about the impact of this on not just those people who are deported, but you know these are all American citizens with children, with families, with friends, all of whom are affected. And bear in mind that this continues to happen. There are literally thousands of American citizens who are deported every year by mistake. There are tens of thousands of American citizens who at any one time are sitting in a detention center um, while their status is determined or settled. But they are American citizens. They're still there and they're still in detention. Now, you could say, well, okay, this is a cost that you must have to pay, a personal human cost, in order to have immigration control. But that obviously raises the question, well, how much of a cost um, are you prepared to, to bear for this? Because if the purpose of immigration control is indeed to protect the interests of uh, citizens, well, what you're doing is you're trading off a price paid by some citizens against a price paid by others. And again, you know, to go back to your original question, so these, these are all human costs. They're not just costs in terms of lost GDP or declining production uh, and so on. This is the, the cost borne by actual people who find themselves in jail or find their spouses or children taken from them um, simply because the more seriously you, you pursue a policy of control, the more you will have to expect a certain amount of fallout that affects everybody. Mm. And, and ever underlining the point of everybody, right? Because as you said, that control ends up sort of spreading itself out around, again, not just to, as a wall, uh, block outsiders, for example, but sort of like as an umbrella over the whole population. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, you know, in, in the American case, and the same is true for the UK and the EU, um, you know, at any given time, there are, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of people held in detention um, and several percent of those are citizens. Now, the number's not going to be the same every year. It varies, but it's never fallen below 1%. And that's a lot when you think about it. You know, that uh, is a substantial number of uh, people who are held in detention for as little as a few days, but for as long as several months. And now, you know, you'd think if you uh, were an EU citizen um, and you're held in detention because someone is unable to establish your status, even though you are not uh, in any way uh, an illegal uh, immigrant. That's a serious consideration. Um, and uh, because this issue is so fraught, uh, governments are very wary of making uh, this public, and it's quite difficult to get information about this. So, you know, most of what we know is, is relatively out of date. 
um, which is also troubling in itself for other reasons. And connecting another thought to the, the idea of social control, because obviously if, if a state wants to control something, they have to keep an eye on things. You also spend some time on surveillance in the book and and, and, and what you call also the socialization of immigration control. So can, can you connect your thoughts on what we were just exploring there to your worries about control when it comes to surveillance and also what you mean by the socialization of immigration control? Okay, so... The the socialization of it, I think, is an extremely important and and underappreciated point. And maybe I I could address this by giving you um, a fairly dramatic sort of example. And this is the the case of Australia's response to uh, illegal immigration, particularly immigration by people who want to claim refugee status. And especially, more importantly, still, if they try to claim refugee status by um, coming to Australia by boat, which they're perfectly entitled to do under international law. They are entitled to make an application for asylum on on landing. The government's response has been to try to prevent them from making their claims by stopping them from landing. So intercepting boats and putting the people on these boats uh, on uh, detention centres in remote uh, how in islands remote from Australia. Now, these people um, have in some cases been there for nine years um, without any prospect of either leaving or getting um, a place in Australia. Although most of those who've, um, you know, the overwhelming number of those who've been processed have been found to be legitimate refugees and entitled to asylum under international law and by implication of Australian law. So why has there not been more of an outcry about this? Because Australia is a country with strong traditions of uh, respect for human rights. Um, It's a society that prides itself on respect for individual freedom, for equality, for all those uh, social democratic values that shares with countries like the United States and Canada and Europe and so on. Um, Well, I think one of the reasons is that um, governments and also those who are skeptical about um, any kind of immigration have wanted to push the idea that there's there's nothing to worry about here. You know? Even though there are really horrifying stories of tremendous uh, cruelty, hardship suffered by people, there's, uh, there are reports of, you know, substantial suicides of um, mental health issues suffered by children. It's something that's very difficult for an ordinary citizen to simply um, accept and deal with. So the solution to this disquiet that you might encounter among citizens or that you might create among citizens is to try to get them to be used to it. You You need to change the narrative. You need to say something that makes people okay with all of this. Okay? Um, so maybe you'll do this by demonizing the people who are seeking asylum, calling them illegal, calling them people who are jumping the queue, even though there's actually not a queue for them to, to join. You might uh, say that they're actually not refugees, but really economic migrant. Again, something that's not true. You might try doing something like demonizing the, the people smugglers, uh, so-called, but even that is something that's extremely complicated because 
it's hard to see what's wrong with the job that a people smuggler is doing if they're actually getting people who are refugees and genuinely so to a place where they can claim asylum. But what you do is you change the, the narrative. Well, what you're in effect doing is trying to desensitize the population to injustice. This is what so the socialization involved. So I think as citizens, one, you know, what we have to ask is, do we really want to be turned into these sorts of people? Do we really want to be turned into people who can be indifferent to the lives of others? Um, because our indifference is critical for the success of the policy. So in that respect, you know, the, the, the victims um, include us. But we're victims not because we're somehow um, disadvantaged. Uh, we don't lose anything, but we're victims in the sense that it's turning us into different kinds of people. It's turning us into people who will be okay with saying, look, you know, um, I'm, I'm indifferent to, to those things that are taking place in my name. Uh, and I think this is a serious moral question. Um, and uh, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, it's very difficult to respond um, and reject this, this view without actually then wholeheartedly embracing policies that, you know, I think for most people in their heart of hearts, no, it's not right. I mean, it's, you know, it can't be right to uh, engage in acts of cruelty. It just simply cannot be, you know, certainly for countries uh, in uh, the liberal democratic uh, world. That's actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're going to do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Chandran Kukathas. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Janet Bufton, Chris Rondolo, and Peter Jaworski. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Chandran Kukathas today. Chandran, I think the first half was great, and and we were just ending off on on a great point before we had to do the break that I actually want want to jump back into because I think it's it's very important when we're talking about the socialization of immigration control. So on the tail end of, of what we were just discussing, you, you know, you you were talking about do we really want to become those people that are de- desensitized or indifferent to some plight or cost put on other human beings, and I think that ties nicely back into your point about the the state ultimately classifying people because as you mentioned certainly more than once in your book as well uh, are another way to frame the question i think at least is that are we comfortable becoming the kinds of people that are comfortable doing the state's job in terms of classifying other people when we look at them which is ultimately a form of dehumanization if we get to the core of it in some in, in some cases the way it's applied i would say yeah, I, I think that's the case. And uh, I think this point is, is generalizable, not just with respect to, to immigration control, but to, to other forms of, uh, uh, of, of social control. I, I mention in the book a particular example that um, deals with the, the case of uh, the Soviet Union when it first became apparent that in the former Soviet Union, there were um, detention camps and there were, you know, those uh, 
um, camps that we now know as the, the Gulag Archipelago from uh, Solzhenitsyn's uh, book, mm-hmm. uh, there were, you know, forms of social control that were pretty shocking when people in the West first saw, you know, um, you know institutions with, with fences and guard dogs and, uh, and guards with guns. They were pretty horrified. And uh, um, the French philosopher Michel Foucault um, made a very interesting observation. He said that actually, you know, when people looked at this, at first what the, the Soviet government did was they just denied that these things existed. But when the evidence became incontrovertible, what they turned around and said, well, look, you know, these people in here, they're, they're all criminals. Um, and, you know, here, see first for yourself and look at the, the images, these control people who are, who are criminals. In the end, the viewers were kind of reassured about this because now they could uh, see that this was okay because it was normalized, okay? Uh, and this is the strategy. You know, you don't turn around and deny that these things are, are happening, you turn around and say, yes, but it's justified and it's normal and this is just, you know, what we do. And a significant enough portion of the population turns around and says, yeah, I guess that's okay because, you know, no one's concealing it. It's right there. It's evident to everyone. Uh, and obviously this doesn't happen immediately. It only happens once the pressure is put on uh, governments to reveal what they've you know, initially tried to, uh, to conceal. Um, but, but this is really, in the, in the end, I think what's troubling. It's you know, with respect to immigration control, but it's also with respect to, to, to other forms of social control. You know, what you do is you end up saying, you know, at first, no, no, we're not controlling anyone. But you end up saying, well, no, 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 it's, it's, it's for the good of society. It's for your own good. And you'll get enough people saying, yeah, I guess, I guess that's okay. And then you don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, you don't have to worry about any loss of your own freedom because you've, you've internalized that. Mm-hmm. And I think you make the point towards the end of the book. Um, I'm not uh, quoting it directly by any means, but, but um, of course this stuff may start out slow, but, but you talk, you, you did mention the fact that once this does get going, it can have more pressure and, and more decrease of freedom and more control can happen a lot quicker than people think. It's not just a matter of one piece of legislation or not. There's a lot of ways it can practically happen. But I think that the fact and the idea that all of this can slip and slide quite fast is, is very important to highlight as well because it's it's certainly not the history shows us that these kind of controls certainly aren't, aren't gradual as they increase all the time yes I, I think that's 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 very true um you know when we look back at um at history you know we 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 see it through through narratives um and uh, uh you know the narratives are always in some way, you know, either compressed or extended, and we we don't have a sense of, um, you know, the if you like the the flow of time. Um, that's uh, um, that's a part of our own uh, lived experience. Um, but you know, some sometimes we can very suddenly, you know, become aware of something that has changed that we just hadn't seen happening. You know, suddenly you you notice that. Um, you know, your freedoms have been diminished. Um, I think many people have probably had this experience uh, under COVID. 
uh, you know, at first there were some very very mild restrictions, and I'm not making a point about the the the, the you know the um, the justifiability of uh, some or any or all of these restrictions, mm-hmm. but um, you know, at a certain point, we suddenly realized that actually um, we've lost a lot of freedom. There were things that we used to do a year ago and took for granted, and now we we don't. Um, it's all come about rather slowly. Um, so, um, of course, you know, some changes may happen quite quickly and we notice them, but other things we just get used to. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think we need to, to ask the question, well, do we really want to get used to some of these things, um, get so used to them that people in authority or with other interests are going to be emboldened to say, well, you know, we could get them to do this or stop doing that we could probably get them to do other things or stop doing other things. Uh, and I think that's dangerous too. Absolutely. And uh, as I look at the clock here and we, we had to our, the last swing of our, our time together, I, w- I want to shift gears just a little bit and tie something into what you were saying before too, which is uh, there is a narrative that the state or people that are proponents of this kind of control uh, will, will create, as you said, to, to justify w- what's happening. And and there, there are many different arguments for this. Um, one one thing I wanted to do is just address a couple or touch on them. And I'll remind listeners, as always, of course, that all of this, of course, is explored in depth in Chandran's book. And we definitely encourage you to go check that out. There's no way we can do everything justice here. But just to get a flavor of that, one of the narratives people will put around different types of controls, especially with the idea of keep, keeping out outsiders out and indeed classifying certain people that are actually in the country as well, as we were discussing before, is, is the idea by by implementing all this control we 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 ultimately preserve our the, the self determination of of the state or the people that that are there C- can you at at, at first um I, if if you will build out the argument as you see it that's presented about self determination and then tell us what what your critique of it ultimately is at a high level right um well this is a fairly complicated um you know question and um you know I, i'm only going to in a sense you know get to the um you know uh, a, a fairly um well let's say just a, a quick account uh, mm-hmm. of it so i I'm, I'm being cautious here because i i don't want to misrepresent those who are making the argument that immigration control is important because of the importance of self-determination. But essentially what people are concerned about is that they, as members of a uh, society, as, as, you know, as citizens of a state, whether it's the United States or Britain, retain a certain amount of control over their own society. They think that they should be determining the direction uh, and the future of of their country, uh, rather than let that um, be determined by somebody else. Now you can see the um, the obvious attraction for this in one way, because you might say, "Well, you know, I'd rather that I and my fellow citizens determine the direction of the country." rather than, say, have that determined by some other people, by, you know, by a foreign power, for example. This is why uh, states around the world um, in the post-colonial era, you know, sought independence because they did not want to have their futures determined by, by others. Okay, 
so far, so good. That, that makes a certain amount of sense. But the other part of the claim is that, so therefore, we collectively have to have control over the direction and the future of the country. And what I want to say is that, well, this part of the uh, equation is not so easy to defend because the, there, are, there are two, two problems. One is, to what extent can you actually control the future um, of your own country? And secondly, who's going to be doing the, the controlling? Okay. So to take the, the first part, um, it's very difficult to actually um, get control over the direction of, uh, of your society because there are simply too many forces at work in the world. Um, for example, just the fact that um, the world is economically interdependent means that it's very difficult for you to try to control, for example, things like you know, unemployment, wages, um, economic development within your own country um, without having to take into account all the pressures that are coming at you from other parts of the world. For example, if you thought you could you know, control the, the labor market and make sure wages didn't fall um, by controlling immigration, well, the, the problem will be that um, your people are still going to be subject to the pressures created by the fact that people outside the country will still be producing goods. They'll still be selling them on a global market. You will still be competing with them, um, and you'll be competing with them on less favorable terms now because your labor costs are going to be too high. So this is going to have an impact on you. So if you think you're going to be able to control um, things, if you think self-determination is something available to you, I would say, actually, it's very limited, okay, the extent to which you can really control the shape of your society. But the other part of the problem is that what this argument takes for granted is that there is a settled we on this. But of course, in any complex society, there are numerous interests with numerous ways of thinking about which direction the country should go um, and uh, what kinds of things should be should be emphasized, what kinds of developments should be prioritized, what kinds of values are more important. So when someone says, well, you know, what we want is self-determination, that's fine if the identity of the self is unambiguously clear. But of course, that's not clear at all. As we started off our conversation talking about, the society is made up of numerous people with, with different interests, with different desires, with different life goals, and so on. So in order to have self-determination, what you're going to have to accept is that some people are going to be doing the determining uh, at the expense of others who are going to have to be carried along, either willingly or unwillingly. Um, now, if that's the case, why are you calling it self-determination? I can understand it's self-determination in contrast with the possibility of, say, being ruled by some alien power, being a colonial subject. Okay, you're not, you're going, you want self-determination in that sense, that seems fine. But if you want to be self-determining because you've got control, well, actually, you, you don't. Um, and I don't want to overstate this, but what I'd like to do is persuade people that, you know, this is not a powerful argument. 
because it, you know, the argument conceals all kinds of uh, difficulties and complexities, which um, really undermine the plausibility of uh, the claim that what we're doing is, to use a popular phrase, taking our country back. Well, you know, who's doing the taking? Mm. It's not everybody. Right. And, and it seems to me that the same problems apply when people will talk about, per, per, for instance, preserving a cultural and the, the cultural integrity or the cultural identity. Again, if we look at the actual people that we can even call perhaps insiders of a certain country, it would be hard to put our finger on, for example, what the dominant, or I shouldn't say dominant, what the culture, if you will, the one culture is. In many cases, you, you simply can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, you think about um, people saying you know, to their fellow citizens, you know, start behaving like an American, start behaving like an Australian. Well, you know, the obvious answer is, well, I, I think I'm behaving like an American. Why aren't you? Uh, because, mm. you know, there are very, very different views about what are the central um, values that make you um, an American or an Australian or English and, and so on. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's often just taken for granted that there is an unambiguously correct answer to this question, at least, you know, um, so it's assumed by some of the speakers. But, you know, I think only a little reflection is needed to see that this is just not the case. I'd like to ask you one more question before we head to our formal wrap-up for our discussion today. And ultimately, that that's this. Some might say that they understand that uh, certain controls or, or restrictions are going to af- affect their freedom to some degree. Let's say this is an ins- insider of a country. Um, but they might also say that they might be willing to accept that to some degree if it insulates them from what they think are the effects of immigration or what, what they view as the negative effects of immigration. What, what would you ultimately say to someone like that who might might say to you, I understand that you're saying that some of these things come with costs, there's a control issue, et cetera, but I'm, w- I'm willing to accept a degree to that. What, what would you say to them or what, what kind of warning would you give them, for, for example? What, 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 what do you think of if someone was to say that to you? Yeah, um, well, <clears throat> at, at one level, of course, you know, each person will have a, a different view about the kind of costs that they're willing to bear. Um, there may be some people who are, are you know, willing enough that they will simply look at all my arguments and say, yep, I'm happy to take, take to bear any burden. If it'll just mean that there's, there's less immigration, I don't care if we're economically worse off. I don't care if there's cultural conflict within the society. I don't care if it changes me as a person um, because, you know, the only thing that really matters to me is, you know, keeping certain sorts of, uh, people out. Now, if if someone takes that view, then I don't think there's a lot more than, than that I can say. But I think that's at the extreme. I think for, for most people, what I really want to, to say is, these are the costs that you are going to have to bear. But also, these are the costs that, you know, your um, fellow citizens and residents will have to bear. Do you think this is this is reasonable? Okay, and and these costs include, you know, the economic costs, which I think are the least significant of the things that are uh, that are troubling, um, but also you know costs in the uh, the freedoms that 
um, you and your fellow citizens um, enjoy, um, some of which you, know, you may have lost but not recognized. Uh, and then thirdly, there is the, the change in the, the nature and the character of this society that comes with this. Now, and I want to say this particularly with respect uh, to freedom, because the book is called Immigration and Freedom. And what I want to say is that, you know, you pay a heavy price in these terms, not only because you might experience some economic loss, not even just because you will experience a greater amount of social control, which you will, um, but also that your fellow citizens and fellow residents, friends and family, are going to bear some of these costs. And I think worst of all, it's going to make many people, possibly you included, um, start telling yourself stories to make you okay with that. And I think that is the, the most serious transformation that um, any kind of cultural control brings about. Because people can't control one another by force alone. It's just too difficult. Um, mm. You know, <clears throat> we are a kind of recalcitrant species. We, we tend to kick against um, anything that restricts us. We, we don't like being uh, constrained. So the only way to control people is to get them used to it. Um, and so I think that the big question that I want to ask uh, people is, are you prepared for that? You know, are you okay with the fact that this will change you or this necessitates a change in your thinking? You have to, be income, you have to become more indifferent to your own freedom and indeed indifferent to the freedom of others. Um, and, you know, if you end up saying, yep, I'm okay with that, I don't have anything more to say, but I think those people are, are relatively few and far between. I think most people um, are concerned about this because most people, um, even those who, you know, have strong anti-immigration uh, views, they, they hold these views because actually they do care about the lives of other people. They don't do it just because they're, um, they're self-centered in some way. You know, mm. They think it's for the best. Okay? And I want to say, well, have you considered this cost? Because this is a big one. Absolutely. And of course, one of the implications of everything you were just saying there too is that, as you said, you know, society does not just, uh, our state in this case, and more narrowly, does not just con control people by force, for example. So one of the implications is, in what you're saying is people should also question how they've arrived to certain things that they do think or take for granted as the reality that the, they're claiming it, it does exist out there. Yeah, yeah, no, no exactly, exactly. Chandran, I'm going to move us ahead to our formal wrap-up here. There was a lot more we could certainly cover, but t time does fly on this topic, and, and we've already covered a lot. So let me say to you, since we've talked about so much, and I always want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word in each of our episodes, so I'm going to give you the opportunity to bring everything full circle and put a finer point on everything. So the official last question of the episode is for the wrap-up. What do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what is wrong with immigration controls? In other words, if you wanted someone to take away one or two or just a few takeaways from this conversation, if anything, from everything they've heard you say, what would you like to leave them with? I think the the, the central thing um, in the book, and, and that's what I would like people to to think about, is that 
immigration control is control of people, and this means that it's uh, a control on people's freedom, and that it's not just the freedom of a very small category of people, that is to say immigrants or would-be immigrants, but it's control over a much wider group of people, um, to some extent over everyone, but you know, um, the burden of control does not fall equally on, on everyone. But it falls on everyone to some degree, and you know this is what I want people to, to to take from the book. And I hope there's enough in the book that will uh, prompt them not only to recognize the the general philosophical point, but also to see in the detail um, why this is troubling. Um, because I th- I think we should be troubled by the prospect of being being controlled by others. We live in a world where um, we need, you know, uh, rules. We need regulations of various kinds because we need to have some kinds of uh, institutions to help us, you know, relate to one to to negotiate with one another. Life is is complicated and and so on. But at the same time, we want to make sure that um, these regulations, these norms, don't affect us in such a way that they transform us into something that we don't want to be, particularly if it ends up um, being the case that the transformation that it wrought, uh, that it you know, brings about doesn't actually serve our interests. Uh, it isn't for the good of people. It actually serves the interests of some abstraction like the body of, uh, of regulations itself. They're not the point. Uh, the point is the relationship among people. And I want to say that what's troubling about immigration control is it affects our relationships. Um, and, and that's something that's, uh, that's important. And as I was saying earlier, we, we definitely recommend everyone uh, checks out the book. This episode is only a mere taste of it. There's a lot more in there. So everyone, please do so. Chandran, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Bye.